Well, I'm going to invite our offering team to come forward. And uh, as they do, let me say, you, you probably were expecting us to jump right back into Hebrews. We will continue our, uh, our Hebrews series next week. We've got the, uh, the, you know, the Hebrews look back around. I don't know, what do you call it? I look, I guess, the way it looks, that's it. Uh, we're going to jump back into that next week, so if you're looking forward to being back in Hebrews, we, we're getting there. But I wanted to take here the first Sunday in January and do a little bit of a family conversation. Now, I know that there are some of you who are visiting, maybe you're here for the first time, or here with family, or from out of town, or maybe from the neighborhood, it's your first time in. Family conversations, I, I recognize, can kind of go a couple of different ways. Like sometimes you're sitting with a family that's not your own around the kitchen table, and you're listening their family conversation, and sometimes you go, man, I really wish I was a part of this family. Like, how cool, right? There's another way it can go sometimes where you're sitting around a table with a family that isn't your own, and you're thinking, I got to get out of here, and I'm glad this isn't my family. You know what I'm saying? I am prayerful and hoping that in the midst of a family conversation this morning about the future, about our church, about what God has called us to, that those of you who consider yourselves to be new around here, that you would have that first response, not the second. That you would look at it and go, this is the kind of family I want to be a part of because we certainly would want to have you uh, to be regular around here, to be in and serving and a part of what God is doing, uh, which we're really excited about. So all of that to say, for me, uh, as I look at the year ahead, as I look at the, at the future even beyond that, there are a couple of things that are really key. As we, as we talk as a family about what it is we're doing here and, and how it is that we do it, what the, the, the hows and the whys and the whats, all of those questions, for me, the most important question, the place you have to start is the why. We as a family, as a body, as a church, have to be able to answer the question like, why are we doing this? Like, why have you taken the time on a Sunday morning to come and gather in this place? Why have we just sung these songs? Why would we open God's word together? Why do we have kids programs and a parking structure? And why any of it? I'm I'm the kind of person who likes to know the why because the why makes the what all the easier to kind of get in on. You know what I'm saying? Like when I was a kid, I'd have friends over and my mom would go, okay, well, if you're going to have friends over, you got to clean the bathtub. And I go, none of my friends are going to be taking a bath, right? I don't know. Like that's not what they're coming over for. And she'd go, well, you have to clean the bathtub anyway in case they pull back the curtain and they look in there. You got to have it clean. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't necessarily like that why, but at least that's a why. You know, I want, I want to know why I'm doing what I'm doing. There are a lot of times as a kid where there were rules that were sort of put in place or expectations and you'd say, well, why are we supposed to do this? Why do I have to do this? And my parents would just go, because I said. And I'll tell you, that was never a very satisfactory answer for me as a young person growing up. I always wanted to understand and to know the why. And what's weird is that I do think sometimes in Christianity, in our churches, sometimes we look at each other and we go, hey, do this and do that and be here and don't forget to sign up for this and live like this and whatever. And we're telling people, that and then they say but why and we go because we said or because uh, maybe sort of vaguely we'll go ah the bible says i don't know about you but that's not a really satisfactory answer for me i don't i don't want to do things because somebody told me i should or because there's sort of a long standing tradition that i will i want to understand why i do what i do so as we as a family talk about where we're headed in the future the place we have to start is the why the why is the motivation for everything else. And the reason I've chosen 1 Peter chapter 4 as our text for this morning is that it is one of several places in the Bible that does a good job of articulating the why, of helping us not only understand how we should live, but why we should live like that. Peter is writing to the church in Asia, modern day Turkey, he's writing to them and encouraging them to live lives of sacrifice like Christ, but he doesn't just say live a certain way, he doesn't just talk to them about the what. 
He talks to them about the why. We see it in the text we just read. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 and following, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order, and here it is, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. There's the why. That in everything, God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. You see, Peter has this fundamental understanding that all glory and honor belong to God, that they are his, they are due him. And therefore, as his disciples, as his followers, as his worshipers, it makes sense for us to set our sights on doing whatever he's called us to do, doing whatever has been laid out for us as an example in the scripture, with the purpose of ascribing to God the glory he is worth. You and I, I don't know if you've thought about it before, but you and I, from the ground up, we're built with a purpose. There is a reason why we exist. There's a reason why our lungs take in air and the blood pulses through our veins. We are built for worship. God gave us life and breath that we would glorify him, that we would honor him because all glory and dominion is his. So the ultimate why for our lives, the ultimate motivation for what we do is the glory of God. And that is at the heart of anything else we would talk about. For us as a church and for us as individuals, if we're gonna have conversations about where we go or what programs we put into place or what, how we budget our money or what staff we hire or how we organize our worship services or how we organize our children's ministries, in a corporate sense, the ultimate answer for all of those things must be the pursuit of the glory of God. And it isn't just true for us as a church, as a large family, it's also true for us as individuals and as smaller families, right? Your family that sits around your kitchen table, your group of friends that functions as a family, your peer group, your coworkers, in everything, you and I need to be thinking through the why, which is, does this glorify God? Are we glorifying God? I'll tell you that in everything we do around here, the motivator is God's glory, and that is, our, that is what we're endeavoring to do. So as we make decisions and as we put things into place, it's with God's glory in mind. You know, motivation's a big deal too. I remember when my, when my sons were playing flag football. They were little guys, and they were on a flag football team, and it wasn't a very good flag football team. You know what I'm saying? Like they were, it was like Parks and Rec kind of deal. And as a dad, I'd be sitting on the sidelines, and I'd be thinking like, okay, I gotta, I gotta be prepared, because it's not a very good team, and when we get back to the car, the kids are going to be kind of bummed out and they're going to be kind of sad and sort of defeated. And so I'm preparing the speech of like, it's not whether you win or lose. It's how you play the game. Don't be discouraged. And I remember one time getting in the car and my boys are just like stoked. Like they're happy. They're high-fiving each other. I'm like, why are you so happy? Like you guys got trashed out there on the field, right? We didn't score a single touchdown. Like that was a rough game. Like, why are you so happy? They're like, we got Oreos in our snack bag. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, and then the exact opposite happened a couple weeks after that. We actually kind of accidentally had a good game. I don't know how it happened. Uh, we scored a few touchdowns. Like it was a decent flag football game. And then I was prepared to give my kids the speech of like, don't be arrogant, be humble, don't rub it in other people's faces. Just because you did good today doesn't necessarily mean you're ever going to do good again. I was ready to give that speech. And, uh, and we get in the car and they're like sad. 
and they're kind of just mopey and, and discouraged. And I said, why are you guys discouraged? You guys rocked it today. That was such a good game. And they're like, we got grapes in our snack bag, right? <laughs> and it occurred to me that like the whole motivation for the football thing had nothing to do with touchdowns or pulling flags or learning the game, nothing about camaraderie or teamwork or any of that. They were playing for the snack bag. In fact, my kids would have been happy to just drive up to the park, pick up the snack bag and go, right? <laughs> They didn't care about anything else. And so much of our lives comes back to motivation. So much of what we do and feeling a sense of fulfillment and a sense of joy in what we're doing has to do with understanding why we're doing it. The key for us as individuals and the key for us as a church has to be about God being glorified. I'll tell you that that we cannot be, you and I and us as a church, we cannot be motivated by money. Because money is not necessarily an indicator of God's glory or God's favor. It cannot be items on a budget that drive us. We can't be motivated by numbers. There are a lot of people and a lot of churches that are making choices simply because they want to have a lot of people in the room. I'm not interested in just getting a lot of people in the room. I'm not interested in just having a lot of money coming in into the budget. I'm not interested in what other people think or common church trends or what other people will say or other people's perceptions. The ultimate right or wrong of what we do as a church has to do with whether or not it glorifies God and that's it. That is the thing that will drive us. And we do that corporately But it's also important for us to understand that that trickles down into the way I lead my family, the way I love my children, the way I make decisions about, uh, you know, where we're going to go and what we're going to spend and who we're going to interact with, what we do with our time, all of it comes back to the glory of God. It's why a verse like 1 Corinthians 10.31 will say, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. That's the why. The why is God's glory. So, so then the question becomes, well, what do we do then? If, if the goal is to glorify God, how do we do it? What's, what's the what, right? Well, First Peter actually gives us a great sort of a summary. And again, this isn't the only place that articulates these, but this is a pretty healthy summary. He says in verse seven, the end of all things is at hand, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded, right? The end of all things is at hand. The first thing he's saying is, look, there's an urgency to who we are and what we're doing. God has put us in this time and place, but there is a ticking clock on human history, right? The Lord Jesus will return, and as he says in the passage just before this, the Lord Jesus will return, and all men will be held accountable for what they've done with their lives. You and I have to live with a sense of urgency because we've been born into this window of time between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ in which our friends and family and neighbors have the opportunity to repent and believe and receive resurrection life. And we can't lose sight of the fact that that window will close. That there is a day coming when the Lord Jesus will return and all men and women will be accountable. We don't want to lose sight of the fact that we live in an opportune time to proclaim the love of Christ to other people. But that time frame won't last forever. And even if the Lord Jesus does not return during our lifetime, which we pray that he does, but even if the Lord Jesus doesn't return during our lifetime, our days are still short because we have limited lifespans. You and I are going to live a certain number of days and then our hearts are going to quit beating and we will be accountable for what we did with the life we had. We have a limited amount of time. And he says, because the time is short, be sober-minded and self-controlled. Now he's juxtaposing something here. In the, in the passage just before it, he's been encouraging the church in Asia, the church in modern day Turkey that he's writing to in First Peter, he's been encouraging them to remember 
that things are going to be difficult, right? Because the Gentiles want to live in all kinds of debauchery. And he says, even in, uh, in 1 Peter 4, 3, he says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. <clears throat> Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, right? He's saying you have to live differently. There's a world in which people are motivated by serving themselves, satisfying their most base pleasures, being drunken and sort of cloudy-headed, and he says that's not who the people of Christ are called to be. Because the time is short, we don't want to be foggy-headed. We don't want to be unclear in our thinking. He says, instead, we should be sober-minded. And he, he doesn't just mean that we shouldn't be drunk, although that's included in what he's saying. But he's saying we want to be clear-headed so that we can understand the situation and the culture, the setting in which we've been placed. For many of us, we look at the world in which we live and we see all the hatred and the bigotry and the pain and the sorrow and the war and the famine and And we kind of just want to hold ourselves away, right? There can sometimes be a temptation to sort of turn a blind eye and just hunker down, surround yourself with people who think like you and feel like you and believe like you and just sort of hope that Jesus comes quick and you don't have to deal with all of the stuff that's happening in our world. But he's saying we don't want to be people who are escaping. We don't want to be people who are clouded in our heads. We don't want to be people who drink to sort of numb the difficulty. Instead, we want to be people who are clear-headed, sober-minded, and self-controlled. Look at what he says, not just for the sake of being those things, but back to 1 Peter 4, 7. He says, be clear-minded, sober-minded, self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Sober-minded and clear-headed, not just for the sake of being sober-minded, but sober-minded and clear-headed for the sake of prayer. One of the things that is absolutely essential for us as a family, as a church, and as individuals is that we have to be people of prayer. We must, must, must be a praying church because the reality is that you and I don't have the power or the knowledge to bring to bear on all of the pain and the suffering that's in our world. We don't have the ability to influence and implement change to the level that is needed in the brokenness of our world. And so what he's saying is don't get drunk, don't be involved in debauchery, don't be involved in orgies and idolatry and all these other things. Instead, be clear-headed so that you can see the needs in the place in which you find yourself planted and you can turn them over to God in prayer. That you can fall down on your knees and say, God, here are the things I see in my neighborhood and in my family and in my city and in my world that desperately need your power to come and influence. We have to be people of prayer. Our prayer life is a direct relation to our dependence upon God. And we'll talk about that more in a second. But as I think about what 2018 holds, as I think about what the years beyond that hold, we absolutely have to recognize that In glorifying God, some of the what is being clear-headed and conscientious for the sake of being able to bring the needs of others before God to be able to pray. I'm hoping in the next month, I'm hoping maybe before February, I still gotta work out some of this stuff, but I'm hoping that we'd be able to put an additional place on our calendar, our weekly calendar as a church, that we could just come and pray. It's not gonna be fancy, there's not gonna be any smoke and lights, and it's it's not gonna be entertaining at all, right? That's not the point, right? The point will be for us to gather together and pray for our city, to pray for our world, to pray for one another, to pray for our neighbors. Because if we're going to see God move in powerful ways, it will be because clear-mindedly we turned to God and said, will you please bring your power to bear in our world? 
He says, instead of being drunk and idolatrous, be clear-headed, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What's he talking, he's he's ultimately, when he's talking about the what, the ways in which we glorify God, he's ultimately talking about living a life like Jesus, right? Because when we think about glorifying God, think about glorifying God, and if if you're trying to figure out, well, how do I glorify God in my life? Like, how do I do it? How do I make sure that every thought and word and deed and attitude glorifies God? Well, the the best way forward is to look at someone who's done that, right? You want to look at an example of someone who has glorified God in thought and word and deed and attitude, and historically, there is only one person who's ever been successful, and it's the Lord Jesus. When we talk about the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he came and he was an acceptable substitute for us, he took our sin upon himself, when we say he lived a perfect life, we don't just mean that he always said please and thank you, and that he opened the doors for ladies when they were going into the Target, or what, they didn't have Target, but you know what I'm talking about, right? We don't just mean that Jesus didn't cheat on a test when he had the opportunity, or that Jesus didn't gossip when people tried to gossip with him. We do mean those things, but in a much bigger sense, when we say Jesus lived a perfect life, we mean he did what we were built for, which is to worship in every thought and every word and every deed and attitude. He never fell short of the glory of God. He never fell short of the glory of God. So when we're trying to figure out how do we glorify him, our best choice is to go live like Christ. That's why a passage like 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 will say, and by this we know that we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments... Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Follow in his steps. Walk the way Jesus walked. Ephesians chapter five, verse one and two says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The bottom line is as individuals and as a church, we exist to glorify God. That's the, that's the why. But the what, what, how do we do it, is simply living like Christ. Now there are a lot of ways we could drill that down. There's a lot of sort of categories we could drop down into. One of them is sober-minded, self-controlled for the sake of our prayers. That is a way we live like Christ. There's another one right here in 1 Peter chapter four. The next one, look at what he says. He not only says be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers, but look at verse eight. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The second way in which Peter articulates this idea of living like Christ is to say we have to be a loving community. We have to be a loving community. That's who Jesus was. It's part of how he glorified God. We glorify God by being prayerful and sober-minded. We glorify God by being loving. And he says cover things with love because everybody's broken and everybody's a sinner. Right? The reality is that everybody in this room... Everybody in this church, everybody in this world is broken. You know that, right? Fundamentally, we're all, it was funny, I talked to a guy after the second service and he goes, when you started, I liked the message, but when you started talking about how everybody's broken, then I was confused because you weren't talking about me, right? Um, All of us are broken. All of us are broken. And the only way in which we can function as a family, the only way in which we can exist together without conflict and division is through love the grace of God that he's extended to us that then we replicate in the lives of other people. 
Can I tell you that as long as we aren't a loving community, as long as love isn't one of our goals and objectives, as long as we aren't a loving community, we will always be internally divided and externally unremarkable. Internally divided and externally unremarkable. Because when the world that doesn't know Jesus looks at us and sees us fighting and gossiping and setting up our Facebook pages to talk trash about each other, right? When the world outside who doesn't know Jesus looks at us and sees us divided, they go, yeah, that just looks like everything else. It looks like my job. It looks like my school. It looks like my relationships with other people. It's just a lot of butting heads and selfishness. When they see that in the church, they find us unremarkable. But when, because of our love for Jesus and our love for one another, we allow that grace to permeate our relationships here, then we cease to be internally divided and we start to be externally remarkable because we look like nothing else on the planet. A group of broken people who actually care about each other? A group of broken people who, despite their differences, have found common ground in the love and grace of Christ? It is a way for us to shine like stars in the darkness. For the glory of God, living like Christ, which means sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of our prayers. It means being a loving community. There are several things we're endeavoring to do in the, in the coming year. Uh, I, I don't want to spend too much time talking about programs because it's not about things we're putting into place. It's about things we all are putting into place, right? That we're all doing in our lives individually. But One of the ways we're trying to be more loving is through the new on-ramp program that's starting today. In fact, it's happening right now. We were talking about the fact that for new people who come into our church, it can sometimes be difficult to get connected. It can sometimes be hard to meet new people and to find some community, find a place to serve, to figure out even what our church believes, what the history is, who the staff are, where, where to get plugged in, what different things are offered, opportunities for growth. Like it's kind of hard to get that information. Some of you in here might be going, yeah, I've been here for a while and I have no idea how to get connected. We don't want this to be a place that's difficult to, to get involved in, to become a family. And so we started this on-ramp program. It, it's a six-week program. It's non-sequential. You can go to the courses in any, uh, in any you know, like, sequence. Um, but it's happening at 1130, and it's a great way to say, if you're here and you want to know how to get plugged in at this church, jump into on-ramp, and there's a crew of people who will not only inform you about things you want to know, but they'll actually walk alongside you to help you get plugged in to community in this place, to get plugged into service. On-ramp started today. If you're, if you're new and you come at the uh, 1130 service, for the next couple of weeks you might think about coming to the 10 o'clock or coming to the 830 so that you can be at on-ramp at 1130 because that's right now we're only offering it at that, at that one time. But that's just one example. One of the things I want to see us leaning into more and more is evangelism. And when I say evangelism, I don't necessarily mean, you know, standing on a soapbox and preaching on the beach or whatever, but I mean like purposefully and intentionally communicating the gospel to people who don't know it, people who've never met Christ. I don't know if you got the chance to walk around at Christmas Boulevard, but there were a lot of people on our campus at Christmas Boulevard who don't go to our church. People from our neighborhood, people from our city, there was every kind of diversity, there was every kind of socioeconomic status, there was every kind of background, every kind of lifestyle. They were all here. And what we want to do in increasing ways is to figure out how to get our arms around those people, not just for the sake of demonstrating love, but demonstrating love that is like no other that is found in Christ. You can look around here and you can see there are a lot of empty seats. Can I tell you that each one of these empty seats represents to me someone who needs to know the Lord Jesus. And the way they will know the Lord Jesus is when we go out and love them, when we go out and share the gospel with them. Evangelism is a big priority for us in the coming days. 
I want us to be people who care about articulating the gospel. I do not want to see these seats filled with people who just came from some other church because they didn't like the music over there or the service went too long or there weren't enough parking spaces or whatever. Forget that, right? I want to see these seats filled with, with those who did not know Christ and have received the truth of his gift of grace. We have to be about love, which includes evangelism. It includes integration of people. It includes a broader diversity and a breadth of who we are as a people. A church that actually represents the neighborhood in which we find ourselves. You know that we've been working over the last nine months with intergenerational connectivity and just trying to get people connected, young and old, different walks of life, figuring out ways to implement mentoring programs, figuring out ways just to have clear communication, to care for those who are lonely or for those who are hurting, for those who've lost a spouse, just to be family. It seems weird that I'd have to say this, but one of the keys for us to glorify God is kindness. Kindness. Just be cool to each other, right? It doesn't feel like we should have to say it, but so often we can be so internally focused that we don't see the faces and the hurts and the needs of the people right in front of us. There are people who come into this place because they are hurting. There are people who come into this place Because the Spirit of God has drawn them. And when they come here, or when God draws us out into the into the farmers markets and into the gas stations and into the grocery stores, He's He's connecting us with people that we would be ambassadors. Now the 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 why is the glory of God. The what is living like Christ, both prayerfully, both lovingly. Look at what he says next. Back to first Peter chapter four, verse seven. He says, As each has received the gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That's verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. What's he talking about there? Well, again, he's, he's pointing to Christ. He's talking about living like Christ. Christ didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, right? He humbled himself to the point of death. Here, what Peter is saying to the church in Asia and what he's by extension saying to us is whatever you've got, whoever you, whatever gift you have, and he's not just talking about spiritual gifts, he's talking about all of it. The blood in your veins, the, the mind that God has given you, the, the intellectual ability, the vocational prowess, whatever it is that you bring to bear, all of those things God has given you. There isn't anything I have that he didn't give me. There isn't anything that I am that God didn't give me first. It's all a gift of God. There isn't anything you are or anything you have that God didn't give you. And here's the deal. God didn't give us these things for us to consume them. Right? He didn't give them to us for us simply to consume and exhaust. He gave them to us as gifts of his grace that we would be good stewards of them. So what the text says is that in order to glorify God, in order to live like Christ, the key for us is to evaluate and assess what have I been given and how then can I bring it to bear in the lives of others? How can I take what I have, whatever that is, and give it away? Give it in the service of other people. What's What's he talking? He's talking about sacrifice. Jesus, again, the perfect picture of someone who's made a sacrifice. You've, if you've been around here for any period of time, you've heard me talk before about the fact that we don't want to be a church that's united in our preferences, right? We don't just want to be a group of people who go, well, yeah, I go to this church because it's close to my house, or I go to this church because I like the music, or I go to this church because I like the kids' ministry, or I go to this church, whatever. We don't want to be united in, in, in our preferences and our tastes because that's ultimately selfish, The thing that we want to be united in is our sacrifice. That no matter who you are, no matter what kind of music you like, no matter where you come from, no matter how far you drive, no no matter what could divide us, we are united in the fact that all of us 
are making a sacrifice in order to be together. That all of us are making a sacrifice in order to glorify God ultimately, right? That whatever God has given us, we are called not just to consume and exhaust those resources ourselves, but to bring those resources to bear in loving and serving other people. He says, whatever gift you've been given, use it to serve one another. And then he gives us a little bit more specific there. He says this, back to 1 Peter chapter 4. He says in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. I was struck as in my studying because I feel like that word oracle is weird, but we just heard it when we were studying Hebrews chapter five a couple months ago. Remember in Hebrews five, it says uh, you should be teachers, but you need to go back and remember again the oracles of God, the basic building blocks, the fundamentals. So what he's saying is that when we speak, when we communicate with other people, we wanna be the kind of people who living sacrificially, being loving, that we're the kind of people who speak with the wisdom of God. That we don't just put out our own opinions, we don't put out our own tastes, our own preferences, we don't just give our own two cents, but that when we speak, we're speaking the very basics, the very wisdom of God. He also says this, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And, th- and that really is the key with regard to the how. With regard to the how. We talked about the why. Why are we doing, why are we here? What, what are we doing here? Why would you ever come back next week? Why would you invite your friends and your neighbors? Why would you share your faith and your love with others? For the glory of God. The glory of God is the end. The why. The what is living like Christ. Being a loving community, prayerful and sober-minded, united in sacrifice, speaking with the wisdom of God, serving with the strength of God. And here is the key to, to the how. How do we do it? Because the key for us in going forward, the key for us in the years and the years ahead, right, is not just that we all go, yeah, let's do it, we can do it, let's glorify God, okay, everybody get a hand in, okay, is everybody excited about this, okay, you know, it's not about us going, yeah, let's try it. If we do that, what I'm talking about this morning is not a new program. I'm not talking about a six-month initiative, we haven't printed any bumper stickers, there's no magnets for your refrigerator, I'm not just trying to get you stirred up and excited about what God has for us for the next couple of months. I'm not talking about a program. I'm not talking about an initiative. I'm talking about a mindset that's in our guts, that flows through our veins, that permeates our conversations and our interactions with each other, that everything we are and everything we do is for the glory of God, living like Christ, but not in our own strength. And that's where it gets tricky. Because sometimes we feel the tendency to want to just try and do it, right? Okay, everybody, let's try and be loving. Okay, everybody, let's try and be united in sacrifice. And that effort on our part will last about as long as your resolution to ride the exercise bike in 2018. Was that, you finished that yesterday, right? (laughs) Done with that yesterday? Why? You see, we've, we've been trained as Americans, and maybe you've heard me say this before, but we've been trained as Americans that like, if we dream it, we can do it, Woo-hoo! you know? From the time we're little, we have our parents saying, oh, Darren, if you wanna be the best volleyball player on the team, just think you can, think you can, think you can, think you can, and you'll get that train up over the hill, right? But if we look at the, at the total of what the Bible says about us, and don't take this the wrong way, but when it comes to glorifying God, And living like Christ as the means to do that. What the Bible essentially says is that you and I are the little engines that can't. 
That it isn't about us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's not about us setting some new resolutions. It's not about us all putting a hand into the center. The only way we will be a community that is loving and sacrificial for the glory of God is if we are empowered by the Spirit of God, and that's it. He is the fuel. You can have the right motive, and you can even put the right actions into place. But if you don't have the right fuel, it all falls apart. You can do the right things for the right reasons the wrong way. We want to be people who are empowered by the Spirit. It's why Jesus will say in Acts 1, in Acts 1.8, he'll say, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He doesn't say, hey, when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll get a boost in power, or your power will be increased, or your power will be improved somehow. It'll be modified. No, Jesus says, look, when the Spirit comes, then you'll have power, Period. You'll receive it when he comes. It's why Jesus will say in John 15, apart from me you can do nothing. John 15, in his speech about the vine and the branches, Jesus says to his disciples in verse four, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, You can do nothing. You see, the key for us being a church that's postured in order to be empowered by the Spirit of God is recognizing that that is the only way things will get done. That we don't bring a little bit of power, we don't bring a little bit of, you know, elbow grease and... No, we are powerless. The key to being empowered by the Spirit is to recognize how desperately you need that. That's, again, why we have to be sober-minded and clear-headed for the sake of our prayers. It's a recognition that prayer is the thing that makes the difference, not our initiatives and not our programs and not our church bumper stickers and not our structures and not our lighting rigs. And none of that, none of that matters. What matters is the glory of God. And that happens because of his people living like him. And that happens in and only in the power of his spirit. As we look both at 2018, which lies right in front of us, but even further beyond that, the, the prayer here is that we would be a church empowered by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, a loving community, living like Christ for the glory of God, a loving community, united in sacrifice, sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of our prayers, for God's glory, that we would be in conversation with each other saying, hey, will you walk alongside me and help me to think diligently about whether or not my life is glorifying God, about if there are ways where I could sacrifice more or ways that I could love more earnestly and consistently. Will you walk alongside me and help me think about the ways in which I have to be increasingly dependent upon the Spirit of God, places where I may still be trying to take control myself? This isn't something we do alone. It's something we do together. It's the joy of being a family. And if you're new around here, and if you're sitting at our kitchen table this morning and you're wondering, we want you to be a part of this too. But we want you to be part of a community knowing what we're about. We're about God's glory. We're about living like Christ. Love and sacrifice. And we recognize from the get-go that those things only happen by the power of God's spirit. But it's not gonna happen because we rally behind an idea or we rally behind a program. It's gonna happen because it gets in our guts. 
because it just becomes part and parcel of every moment of every day, whether we're in this building or we're in our jobs or we're in our homes or we're sitting around the kitchen table in our own houses, but that in every facet of our life, we're thinking about the glory of God, a life like Christ empowered by the spirit. When it becomes something that's in our bloodstream, when it becomes something that's in our bloodstream, then we won't need fancy programs and we won't need the bumper stickers and the fridge magnets or any of that because it's just something we carry in our gut. That's my prayer for us, all of us, in the days ahead. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would give us a clear view of you, that we would look to you and see you clearly and recognize that you and your glory are the ultimate why for everything that we are about. That you would help us to be people who recognize our lack of power, our lack of ability, and our utter and total dependence upon your power and your spirit within us so that then empowered by the spirit, we would be loving, we'd be kind, be sacrificial, that we would be good stewards the very grace that you have extended in your gifts to us. God, we want to be people who are singularly focused on you. We pray, God, that you would give us a transfusion, that this purpose, that this heart would beat in our chests and flow through our veins. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.